0: Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights virtual service. Thanks for joining us this morning. So we're in our fourth part of a series, which we have titled How to Plant a Church Again. And I just want to begin once more by sort of recapping the last three weeks. So we've been talking a lot about the incarnation. John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In week one, we talked about how God enters into human culture, and following that pattern, the church must also enter into culture and and work to make the Christian story meaningful, Uh, meaningful, not relevant, but meaningful to our cultural context, gospel being already relevant. In week two, we noted how sometimes the church thinks either in terms of Christ against the culture or in terms of Christ of culture. There's a tendency for the church to either withdraw from culture altogether because we believe Christ is against it, or to sort of blend in with the culture because we believe Christ just blesses anything the culture happens to be doing. Either way, the church becomes irrelevant. If we're indistinguishable from the culture, then we have nothing distinctive left to say. If we withdraw, then there's no conversation to be had. And so we must charter a course between these sort of extremes of withdrawing or just blending in. The light shines in the darkness, John says, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so last week, in week three of our series, we began considering the spiritual journey And writings of author C.S. Lewis. He was an Oxford Don and an atheist who became, uh, I think, a a great example of someone who was able to communicate so well with his own culture, what he became a Christian, and he was able to communicate so clearly the Christian narrative with his culture, even making uh, contributions to the broader cultural discourse in significant ways, while at the same time maintaining a distinctively Christian Perspective, and so last week we considered how he didn't just list off Christian beliefs and propositions, and then try to sort of defend them against uh, those who would attack those ideas. He, he he instead appealed to human imagination. He started with the lines of the human heart, and told the story that weaves them together. So Lewis was good at communicating incarnationally with his own cultural context. Can we do this? And what will it take to to go about this? Well, this raises another interesting question, which I would like to start with this morning as we continue our sort of extended meditation on the the applied theology of John chapter one. Um, What what does it mean to, to follow the pattern of the incarnation in the life of the church? So the question I want to start off with this morning is, which culture are we trying to reach? And we could say, well, New York City culture. But, but that doesn't really narrow it down a whole lot. New York City is a very diverse city, as you know, and as someone has said, there's not just one New York, but there are numerous different New Yorks. And one of the things I love about the city is that you, can, you know, can walk from one block to the next, you go one street over, and you suddenly find yourself in, in quite a different cultural setting. It's amazing, and I think that's one of the things that, that makes New York City so uh, unique. And that's one of the reasons why we need more church plants uh, in New York City. We need, you, you remember in the first week of this series, I mentioned that Mark Reynolds of City to City, and they're, the, they're like the church planting experts in New York. And if you remember, I said he spent an hour trying to dissuade Julia and me from planting a church in the city. But what I didn't tell you was that at the end of that conversation, He said, we're praying for 200 new church planters to come to the city over the next 10 years. So he spent an hour trying to talk us out of it. And then he said, but actually, this is what we're praying for. Uh, He was doing his due diligence. He'd seen, as I said, so many different church plants fail. And he wanted us to know, look, this is what it's going to take. But all that to say, we need more church plants in New York. And one reason is precisely because one single church can't reach everyone. Or another way of saying this is that different types of churches reach different types of people. So with that in mind, this idea that it takes different types of churches to reach different types of people, With that in mind, we've set our sights on creating a space where very skeptical people in New York, perhaps people who think the church is the problem, who are perhaps atheists or agnostics, and sometimes feel that they have to choose between emotional and intellectual honesty on the one hand and Christian faith on the other. Well, we want to create a space where these friends in our neighborhood can explore the Christian faith for themselves. So while everyone is welcome, we realize we have a particular voice, we have a particular aesthetic, a style of communication, which will really appeal to some people and maybe not so much to others. But that's okay, because as I said, it takes different types of churches to reach different types of people. But it's important to keep in mind why we're doing this. The, The first thing we're trying to do by entering into this particular cultural context, as with any church, trying to do the same in their own, what we're trying to do is we want to convey that we belong together that, that somehow our lives are meant to be lived with and for each other we have some friends tommy and sue moon uh, some of you have met them before and they are just really good at this they're they're, they're experts at this um They were very hesitant to move down to Mexico uh, to go and teach at a seminary down there and be part of a church plant. They were not sure if they would enjoy living down there, but one of their friends said, well, why don't you just go down there for a year, try it out, if you don't like it, come on back. You're not stuck, it's not written in stone. And so they thought, okay, we'll, we'll give it a go. Well, when we met them, they'd been down there for nearly 20 years and they were obviously really well loved extremely popular with the student body where uh, Tommy and myself were teaching and they had plenty of Mexican friends. And it, and it was obvious that unlike the other expats, uh, they had assimilated into the culture much more successfully. In fact, I remember several Mexican friends would tell me, yeah, Tommy and Sue, they're, they're one of us. So I asked them what their secret was. And something they said was that there's a tendency for expats to sort of all hang out together in their expat community. And, and think about it, it it's, it's just easier, isn't it? You know, th- these people are gonna know your first language, your mother tongue, and they'll get all the cultural references which other people won't get. And so they decided right from the start, Tommy and Sue decided that they, uh, were going to, they weren't gonna do that. They were going to spend a large majority of their time with Mexicans in many ways, hanging out with me and Julia, that was sort of an exception to the rule. They sort of broke their own rule. It was was not what they were used to doing. But by doing that, the way they did it, they became fluent and culturally sensitive so that they no longer seemed like outsiders, but truly part of the cultural conversation. So to go back to CS Lewis, And his classic work of apologetics, Mere Christianity, which we talked about last week. Uh, That book actually started life as a series of radio broadcasts and as a series of talks delivered to servicemen. Uh, Lewis was invited to give talks at an operational training unit, a Royal Air Force base for Bomber Command. Not everyone was sure that Lewis was the right person for the job, Uh, Lewis was used to teaching at Oxford, uh, so how was he going to cope communicating to young men who had left school at 16, who had no intention or interest in doing anything remotely academic? Well, Lewis had similar misgivings himself, and after his first uh, speaking engagement at the RAF base, uh, he, he said about his own talks, he said, it's a waste of time. As far as I can judge, they were a complete failure. But as it turns out, They were not. And the RAF asked him back for more. And this experience was absolutely formative for Lewis' future work. Reflecting on this experience, Lewis says, we must learn the language of our audience. And let me say Mm -hmm. at the outset, it's no use at all laying down a priori what people do or do not understand. You have to find out by experience you have to find out by experience so lewis engaged in discussion and debate with these hard-nosed no-nonsense air crew learning how his academic style did not connect with them and then learning and finding out what would again like my friends tommy and sue it was this sort of time with people and, and this sort of full immersion experience that allow them to learn the language. Now, if you think this sounds very difficult and it sounds like a lot of hard work, yes, you are correct. In fact, Lewis himself says the same thing. He says, you must translate every bit of your theology into the vernacular. This is very troublesome and it means you can say very little in half an hour, but it is essential. So so let's think about what Lewis is saying here. It's troublesome. It's troublesome because it is hard work and it's complicated. But he says it is essential. We have to translate every bit of our theology into plain English. Take the word sin, for example. Novelist Francis Spufford points out that the word sin is associated with stockings and suspender belts and too much chocolate and generally being a little bit naughty or sometimes it's associated with judgmental, prudish legalists who want to squeeze all the joy out of life. So culturally, that's what this word sin is associated with. It comes with all of this sort of baggage. Now, obviously that's not what we want to communicate when we use that word, but in a context where the word sin on its own conveys these sorts of trivialities, we're actually in danger of trivializing the Christian story. Now, that doesn't mean we stop talking about sin. I actually talk about sin almost every single week on a Sunday morning. It's just that I I don't use that word. We don't ditch the concept, but we just have to be more explicit, not less explicit, but more explicit. We have to put the word in the context of the story of creation and image-bearing, and and what the failure to reflect God's image means, and what that might mean for all of our relationships. Sin is shorthand for all of this. So we can't use the shorthand on its own. We have to sort of do the work of building the concept up from from the ground up. If you remember um, last spring, I, I I likened it to that game taboo. You, you know where you have to get people to guess a word, but you, you have to you have a list of words that you can't use to describe that other word so here is a serious challenge: Can you have a discussion about sin, fallenness, repentance, redemption, sanctification, salvation all those words can, can you talk about all those? And sustain an in-depth conversation that really explores the meaning of each one of those concepts. And then sustain that conversation for hours on end, but without ever actually using a single one of those words. In other words, can you tell the Christian story? Can you communicate the Christian hope without using those particular words? Because all of those words carry a particular sort of baggage that needs unpacking, first of all. Now, when we do this, what we'll discover is we're not only increasing the chances of us being better understood, but we will actually better understand our own faith. Because the concepts behind the shorthand, uh, the the words we just throw about sometimes quite carelessly, will begin to take on a much deeper, more profound meaning. And in fact, someone as brilliant as C.S. Lewis found this out for himself, He says, it is also of the greatest service to your own thought. I've come to the conviction that if you cannot translate your thoughts into plain language, then your thoughts were confused. Power to translate is the test of having really understood one's own meaning. Now, let me say at first, it may feel totally unnatural as you try to sort of work through those concepts um, or the Christian story or those theological ideas without using those particular words at first it may feel totally unnatural and forced perhaps when Julia and I first started learning uh, Spanish when we lived in Mexico uh, I'll tell you how it felt at first it feels like you're a three-year-old, a four-year-old, where you, you, it's really difficult to join in conversation with other adults, because you, you try to formulate a sentence in your head that's relevant to the conversation that's going on around you. But by the time you've sort of pieced all the pieces of the conversation, that sentence together, and, and you're ready to spit that sentence out, the conversation has already moved on three or four, four or five times. So it really does feel like you're a four year old trying to engage in this adult conversation. You don't really have any particular view or established opinions of your own on on anything. And, And so just take a moment to imagine what that's like to have your language taken away from you. So it's very clumsy and faltering at first. So you know what we did in order to sort of help accelerate the process is Julia and I had a rule. We could not speak English to each other or anyone else from the time we left our apartment in the morning until 6 p.m. that evening. And I tell you, it, is, it felt so unnatural at first. And, and, and this is how I described it. It was almost like taking a deep breath in the morning and then holding your breath until the evening, until we could finally speak English again. It was really difficult at first, but over time it paid off. About eighteen months later, I was able to start teaching uh, theology and Spanish. Horrible accent, but that's a whole other issue. Uh, and eventually, you know, we started dreaming in Spanish as well. Um, Julia's accent was was much better than mine, just just for the record. So I want to leave you with this challenge this week, as we keep thinking about the the very practical implications of taking this incarnational theology presented in John chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen the glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. How are we going to communicate that grace and truth? How are we going to follow this incarnational theology and work it into uh, our way of communicating as a church, with the culture. So I want to challenge you this week to try it. Uh, Make a list of what might sound to some like just theological jargon, just noise, and start working your way through that list. Maybe some of the words that I've already mentioned earlier. Or another way of doing this, think about the major moves in the biblical plot line, in, in the Christian narrative. right? creation, fall, redemption. And again, try to walk through the Christian story without using any of those other words which people are going to find confusing and feel like it's a coded language which people won't understand. The very act of forcing yourself to use different language will cause you to adopt these concepts in a different way. And as I said, brilliant as he was, Lewis Lewis, found this out for himself. So as you try this out, think about C.S. Lewis, if it helps, sitting with the servicemen, or think about that game, taboo, as you're passing the buzzer around and and, and you can't use any of those words, or or think about um, not being able to speak English, having your language taken away from you all day long until the evening, which feels like holding your breath from morning uh, and not breathing again till evening. Think about some aspect of the Christian narrative and now think how are you going to translate this for your friends?